Describe yourself in three words. I would say grateful. I didn't expect my life to turn out the way it did. I'm so lucky that I've you know, managed to do what I always wanted to do and I uh, get paid for it. So I'm very lucky and I have a lovely family. So in my career, I'm very questioning. So I remember once I wrote a piece for National Geographic and they asked me to define myself. And I said, I don't take any BS from anyone. And that is still the case now. I don't take anything at face value. And I guess for the last one, hopeful, I think, because um, I just work with so many wonderful people who have such an urge and a will to change the world and make it better and improve people's understanding of themselves. And those people far outnumber (laughs) all the very negative people in the world. So that makes me hopeful. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Global Health Lives. I'm Dilan Devakumar, and today I'm joined by Angela Saini, a journalist and science writer. Angela has been a news reporter and written on a variety of topics, but is best known for her two best-selling books, Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, and Superior, The Return of Race Science. Angela, thank you for joining me. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. So I first read your book, uh, Superior, a couple of years ago, and it was fantastic. And I, and I remember thinking, it'd be really great to work with you. And I'm very happy that you agreed, and we briefly did work together. Yeah. Um, but it's fair to say the topic of racism in health was not well appreciated. But the events of the last year has changed things dramatically. Um, the increased risk of death in minoritized groups related mm-hmm. to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And then the police homicides, um, in particular George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests. Your book came out before 2020, before those events. But can you tell me what this change was like and how you've seen these discussions evolve over the last couple of years? It's been very odd because before I started writing Superior, I think there was a part of me that also believed that in the course of my research, I would find that race was somehow meaningful to health questions in a biological way, that there were some innate differences. And I think that was because growing up and going to the doctor, you are constantly told if you belong to this group, then you are then you have a higher likelihood of this in loads of different respects. I, I remember when I was pregnant, somebody said to me, South Asian women tend to give birth early. In my case, I gave birth two weeks late. I had to be induced. But it was so rooted in my head that these things really mattered. Mm. And so writing the book and realizing and understanding that actually that wasn't true, that almost all the racial disparities that we see in health are down to other factors, socioeconomic factors, environmental factors, social, cultural, lots of different things, differences in the way that we live, essentially. Um, And that's not to say that there aren't some fuzzy statistical differences between populations that can affect certain things. You know, there are genetic conditions that are concentrated in some communities more than others. But race itself is a fallacy is a biological fallacy. So this idea that if you're black or if you're brown, that you would somehow, that you would have some innate propensity to Mm. some, for example, a virus, just doesn't make any sense. Um, And that's what I communicated in Superior. What was surprising was then when the pandemic hit, you know, around five, six months later, um, all I could see around me were racial myths. People, first of all, at the beginning of 2020, there was this myth circulating on social media that black people couldn't catch COVID because the rates were quite low in Africa at that time and the, and the virus was spreading through Asia into Europe. 
And then by March, April, that racial myth had completely turned on its head because we were seeing higher rates of uh, illness and death among non-white people in the UK and the US, so disproportionate rates of death. And then the racial myth became black and brown people are more susceptible to COVID. I'm not sure that ever in history has a racial myth kind of risen and fallen and come back in a completely different form <laughs> so quickly. That prompted me to work with you and also to um, start writing on this topic. So I, I did an essay for The Lancet on this. If these huge disparities were down to genetic factors, it would be the first time in the world that I'd ever... You know, we've never seen that in the case of a virus. We've never seen that before. Mm. And yet, common sense just went out the window. Rationality just went out the window. Um, and to some extent, we're still laboring under that. So we're still dealing with this. You know, It's not mm. that this kind of reckless speculation hasn't gone away. It's still there. Thankfully, the narrative has shifted in favor of recognizing that what we are looking at are the social determinants of health in the same way that we see very big health differences between people of different classes. We don't biologize that. We don't you put that down to some innate difference between rich and poor people's genetics. Um, we need to do the same with race. And I do think that narrative has shifted in large part, as you say, because of the George Floyd murder and how that shot uh, racism and inequity up the agenda. And even doctors changed what they were saying after that. But I still think there's quite a lot of work to do. Yeah, for me, it's always been racism or xenophobia or discrimination. Mm -hmm. It's not the race itself that matters. It's how people are treated. And that could be based on their color or religion or, you know, many other factors that categorize people into different groups. Yeah. And ca categorizing with the hierarchy, this group's better mm -hmm. than that group. Yeah, and I, but I think it plays out in very subtle ways. So it's not just that, uh, you know, if you are black or if you are brown, you have this proportional extra risk than a white person. It is all dependent also on your class, your socioeconomic status, mm. how you live, you know, what kind of, uh, and it, this depend. you know, this affects different conditions differently. But if we're just talking about the virus here, the job that you do and how many people you live with, whether you live mm. in an intergenerational household, all of these things are going to make a difference and they overlap with ethnicity. You know, they're correlated with different ethnic factors because of cultural differences and um, and social differences in how we live. And it's also the reason why in the summer of last year, some of the highest rates that we saw were in the Northeast and in Wales, because these are some of the poorest parts of the country. They're also the, some of the whitest parts of the country, but they're mm -hmm. also very poor. So we have to understand that what we're seeing is not just about race. It's a confluence of all these different factors, which many of which correlate with race. So you grew up in East London, living in different places, and then moved to the southeast of London um, from very cosmopolitan neighbourhoods to a very white one. And this was a fairly volatile time. Um, there was the kind of unofficial headquarters of the British National Party nearby. And I remember this time, there were overt acts of racism that were commonplace. Um, mm. One that sticks in my mind was just being in a shopping centre with my mother. And this man came up to us beside us and started singing racial slurs at us and it was so strange because he was kind of saying horrible things but singing and dancing beside us as we were walking along um and and i think just that incongruity really <laughs> struck with me um what, what was it like for you living there at that time uh it was very similar it was that kind of um low level everyday people noticing you because you are 
the few one of the few brown families in the area. I have to say it's very different now. So where I grew up was very um, white, kind of middle class, working class. I mean, the population itself were the kind of white flight population. So people who had left East London when migrants moved in and they'd moved to these mm. kind of more uh, salubrious suburbs. Um, and now that has completely changed. So now when I go and visit my parents, it is very ethnically diverse, the area. The Working Men's Club has closed down <laughs> and there's a bar there and there are lots of different restaurants. And um, we often see black and brown people walking in the street, which when we were young, if that had happened, we would have commented on it. We would have said, look, yeah. there's a brown yeah. person, there's another brown person. Who are they? Where do they live? Um, but um, it was a strange upbringing. I had moved from a very multicultural area of East London to this part of South East London. And I remember when I started primary school, um, outside on the lamppost outside the primary school, somebody had drawn a swastika. And in my naivety, you know, I was only like eight or nine years old then, in my naivety, I thought, um, why isn't that cool? There must be Hindus living here because they've drawn a swastika on the lamppost. It took me years. It was as an adult that I reflected on that and thought, no, that was a fascist symbol that he had drawn it, obviously. And I'd passed that every single day going into school as a child. Every single day I'd passed that swastika. Mm. And it had never occurred to me that that was actually a, a racist symbol that had been drawn there. It's interesting how you can sort of normalise things and that that is... See, you described yourself as a bookworm reading science fiction, politics, history, mm -hmm. uh, but you're also good at math and science and inspired by your father, you studied engineering at, mm -hmm. at Oxford. And there you got involved in politics and the anti-racism society. And this sounded like a very kind of exciting and invigorating time at university. Um, yeah, and I guess university is like that for everyone. It's quite tragic, I think, the last year that students haven't been able to go to uni because I think it's not just about the course that you do and what you learn. It's also about all those experiences. And um, I was lucky that because of this college system that they have there, my best friends were historians rather than engineers. And um, so I was exposed to lots of different subjects. And so I got a kind of informal liberal arts education in a way. Um, mm -hmm. Even though I was studying uh, engineering, I read very widely about lots of other things. And like you say, I got involved in the anti-racism committee on the student union, which was quite important because people take their politics very seriously in Oxford, not least because so many of them go on to become MPs and ministers mm -hmm. themselves, including some of my friends have. So that was, uh, quite formative because even though it wasn't very high up the student agenda, anti-racism at that time, there were cases, you know, there, were, there was one case of um, racism that had been brought against university by students. So it was there. We were thinking about it. And those of us, there weren't met very many ethnic minorities at Oxford, but we were thinking about these things and talking about these things and asking what can we do um, to change things. And there was a huge optimism because it really felt in the late 90s, early 2000s, as though this country was moving in a completely different direction, mm. that we were, mm. you know, on the way to becoming a post-racial society. It might take a long time, but we were, we were at least moving in a positive way. And of course, by 2015, 2016, we realized 
how ridiculous that was. You know, we're nowhere near. And in fact, we went backwards. You know, Trump was elected, Brexit. And it's not to say that Brexit was racist. My dad voted for Brexit. But there were so many racial undertones in that campaign and it became so heavily racialized and immigrants were targeted. So I think it, it's impossible now to say that we, we're, we're moving towards a post-racial society. We have a really long way to go. So from there, you went into journalism. You moved to India. You worked for the front line, living and working in Delhi on a range of different stories. Um, and I was particularly interested in the one you did on slum clearances and, and what happened to the people who were moved away. Could you just talk a bit about that? Um, so after I graduated from university, um, I wanted I wanted to kind of do real on-the-ground journalism and although you obviously you can do that, especially in the local papers here in the UK, and I did work at a local paper for a little while when I came back, but I went to India to work for a left-wing magazine called Frontline, which is part of the Hindu, which is one of the main big um, national newspapers in, in India. And um, I've worked on kind of quite diverse, disparate stories, um, some of them touching on issues around resource access, um, so for example, water issues, but also on slum clearance. Um, there was a community, there were many slum communities right throughout Delhi, but there was one community of Kalakars. So these are um, performing artists. They work in circuses and as performers, fairgrounds, um, acrobats, circus performers, that kind of thing. Um, very talented, you know, hugely talented. And they're inducted into this from a very young age. So even the very young children can do these amazing acts. But the local government at the time was planning to shift all the slums to the outskirts of the city. So all the people that were living in these areas, um, they wanted to move out, this, out of the city, partly to clean up the city and make it look more presentable, um, but also because they were saying, you know, we're giving them better housing instead of living in these kind of makeshift properties, you will have proper brick buildings outside the city. And the tragedy of this was, of course, that people live in the city, they stay where they are because that is where their work is. If you mm. move them out, their work disappears. They can't just move back in whenever they whenever they want to do their work. They need to be where their work is. They need to. These are communities. They're very tight knit, and they've been there for a very long time. Um, so when I spent time within this community, I realised, however miserable the conditions might be, there is a very tight sense of family and community among people and a system. You know, this isn't just about a bunch of houses together. There, there is everything they need is in that in that place that they're that they're in and when you when i went to the outskirts and looked what this new housing was like it was just awful the few people that had already moved there were just lost they didn't have a source of income and even though their houses were all right they had nothing to do so the men were sitting outside drinking and there was just nothing for them there so it was a really unhuman policy in some ways because mm. it didn't recognize the needs of these people it was just really an effort towards gentrification of Delhi, of saying, let's move the poorest people out so that we don't have to look at them. It didn't really ask itself, well, actually, what are their lives going to be like when we do this? And we see that all over the world. We see it in London as well. Yeah. I remember later when I became a reporter at BBC London, I interviewed the then mayor of Newham about gentrification in Newham. So this is the region around the Olympic Park, Stratford, which is a very mixed area, or at that time was was less mixed. It was very kind of working class, affordable. There were these beautiful 
markets, very low cost markets where you could get whatever you wanted. He essentially told me that he wanted the area to be gentrified and he didn't mind if people left as a result of it, if prices went up or if house prices went up, because it would be better for the area and it would be better for them if they did leave and go go elsewhere. Mm. You know, so we have to ask ourselves when we change our societies and our environments and the communities that we live in, as they become more affluent, who is paying yeah. the price for that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking of mm. other cities around the world. Mm. You see this in uh, in Brazil, in mm. you know, particularly times of the Olympics and mm. so on. They were moving people out, clearing up the favelas. So then you moved back to the UK and you worked in the newsroom uh, for ITN, Channel 4, BBC. And one of the big stories you worked on was kind of investigative reporting on fake universities uh, that were giving out fake degrees. And this whole story just sounds like a work of fiction. Um, <laughs> describe what you found out. Well, I was an ITN trainee and then I went to the BBC to work as a local reporter um, covering East London. So if you ever walk through East London, you'll know that there are these kind of little colleges <laughs> above shops, very tiny places. And the council was investigating them and asking what is going on here. And what they found was that not all of them were as they appear. So the case that came, landed on my desk was that of a, an Indian student who had um, invested all his family's money into coming to the UK to do a degree at one of these colleges. And when he turned up, it turned out to be entirely bogus. The university was just a kind of front. The college was like a couple of rooms. There wasn't mm. anything real there. And he felt completely cheated. He didn't know what to do. So um, I took up his case, essentially. Um, I was very fortunate that BBC London gave me um, a very brilliant producer, Nigel Morris, um, who had worked on investigations at the BBC to work with me and did quite a lot of undercover filming. So we used actors, actors pretending to be students, but also actors pretending to be um, uh, business people trying to see what this model was like and and build a collaboration <laughs> so that we could find out exactly what was going on here and what the model was. Um, and we followed all of this all the way through with respect to a small number of colleges and an institution that called itself Irish International University, um, which had a website and everything. It had videos, mm. it had degree ceremonies, so it would rent out wow. spaces at big universities where it would host degree ceremonies and these people would dress up in gowns. And the degrees they were handing out were complete rubbish. They weren't accredited. They didn't mean anything. Um, and we followed this all the way to one of the people who was running this entire operation who lived in Monaco. So he's a British guy who lived in Monaco. So we went to Monaco and we did this kind of undercover sting on him. We had hidden cameras in a hotel room. And then, you know, there was that big TV news moment where I come right. in and say, gotcha. <laughs> and we expected <laughs> him at that point to walk out because that's usually what happens. That's what we had rehearsed, that he will mm. walk out and I'll follow him with a microphone and say, did you do this? Did you do that? And that didn't happen. In this case, exactly the opposite happened. He was sitting there and he told me everything. And then at the end, he said to me, I'm going to go and play tennis now. Do you want to come with me? <laughs> Thanks, Lo. And we had to ask him to leave because we had been there so long. The cameraman, his shoulders were hurting. Uh -huh. So it was bizarre. And it was um, probably the biggest story I've ever done. And it helped change government policy around bogus colleges. And I'm very pleased to say that that student, Sunak, who I'm still in touch with, got his money back. 
So can we talk about the two books that you're most famous for? We'll first talk about Inferior. This was about how science treats women and women as scientists. Um, and in the world of engineering, where you worked, it's mm. feel dominated by men. In contrast to medicine, and particularly global health, uh, especially, which is mostly women. Um, what was your motivation for doing this book? And did you expect the reaction that it got? Um what prompted it really was um, I'd been asked to write a story on the menopause um, for the observer after I came off maternity leave. And even though that was completely outside my wheelhouse, um, like I said, I had an engineering degree. And when I left the BBC, I was concentrating on physical sciences and engineering stories. When I was asked to do this story on the menopause, I wasn't in a position to refuse work at that point because I'd just come off maternity leave. Um, and it got me wondering whether the sex of the researcher mattered or the gender of the researcher mattered to the kind of questions they asked and the research they did, especially when it comes to human difference. Because when we're talking about human biology, we are so different as individuals, radically different as individuals um, in so many different ways that any kind of generalization about human nature is fraught. And yet in fields like evolutionary psychology and in evolutionary biology for that matter, there are so many of these great pronouncements about who we are and especially gendered pronouncements about what women are like and what men are like and who we are. And and I wanted to know um, whether, contrary mm. to the way I had been trained into science and engineering, actually perhaps this isn't as objective as it all seems. <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know, your political persuasions or your biases or your prejudices do matter. And many people have written on this, you know, social scientists have written on this quite widely for many, many decades. There are wonderful scholars like Cordelia Fine, for instance, whose book Delusions of Gender really kind of got to the heart of how we gender uh, observations and theories without really having all the data that we need to justify those that's that kind of speculation. Um, and that's why I wanted to look at every area, starting with the menopause. So that was that was what I'd written about first, but it was the last chapter of the book. But looking at what a battleground, a scientific battleground a woman's body is, and why research into sex difference is so politicized, why it has, has historically been politicized but remains politicized now, who does the research and why that matters to the outcome, um, but also trying to get to grips. And this is something I'm doing more now in the book I'm writing now. Um, I didn't have, I think, the bandwidth or the space to go into it into, in much detail when I was writing Inferior, but also trying to understand why do we cling to these binary categories in such profound ways, in such deep ways in Western science, when we can see from our own observations of the world around us and, and looking mm. at other cultures and other systems of knowledge, that people think about these things very differently. You know, um, the assumptions that exist yeah. in Western Enlightenment thinking around gender and race are actually not shared universally. Um, and how different might science look if we if we slightly shift that perspective? So that's something I didn't go into in great detail in Inferior. But what I did try and do is undermine this idea that um, sex differences are as profound as we think they are. And this book coincided with the Me Too movement. It was around the same time. Yeah, by the time it came out, the Me Too movement was um, gaining steam. And I think that's one reason why women scientists in particular just took it up, because... 
um, the way I'd written the book, I'd interviewed women scientists, some of them retired now, who were speaking about their experiences trying to change orthodoxies about female biology and behavior and challenging some of these uh, ideas within their field and always coming against roadblocks from uh, senior male scientists mm. and how difficult that was, the sexism they were facing right the way through. So not just living examples, but also people in the distant past in the 19th century and early 20th century. Um, and I think that struck a chord with women scientists because they experience that every single day. They, you know, Many female researchers, at least who I've spoken to, will have some kind of story of being undermined or being undervalued or underestimated or of harassment or abuse or something else. And um, it has an impact on the demographics of science, undoubtedly. I think mm. it explains to a large degree why so many women peter out the higher you move up the hierarchy mm. in academia. And um, it became, the observer described it later as a kind of rallying cry. The book became a rallying cry. But I think even if the book hadn't come out, that would have still happened. You know, these women would, these women scientists would have been would have been making these demands and and making their voices heard. But it helped become a kind of little channel for that. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of role models, particularly for for women? Well, um, I struggle with this because I work with a lot of scientific institutions and universities, and they will often go on about role models and why we need senior women scientists that younger girls can look at and say, if she can do it, then I can do it. Um, and I remember when I was at school in sixth form and I was planning to do engineering and I was the only girl in my maths and chemistry classes at that time, one of the school governors, who I didn't know personally, um, gave me a copy of Dorothy Hodgkin's biography um, to read. And I remember thinking at the time, why is he doing this? I just didn't understand it. It was only later that I realized was that he was saying, you're a girl who's doing this and here is a woman who did it. This should inspire you. But it didn't connect with me because as far as I was concerned, here is a woman who lived a very long time ago who had a very different life from mine. She didn't live the way I lived. For me, because of where I grew up, racism was the big thing that defined how I lived. I wasn't told by my parents, because you're a girl, you will find life harder. What I was told was, because you're brown, you're going to have to work 10 times harder than everybody else. And that's why I did. So the reason I wanted to do engineering was because my dad had mm. done it. I'd seen my dad do it. And because my dad was like me, I thought, okay, the, here is a valid potential career for me. Because if my dad can do it being brown, then I mm. can do it being brown. So I think we have to understand that and this is what makes me slightly uncomfortable about female role models. That's not to say they're not useful, because I do think they make a huge difference. It's a different case for each mm. girl. So I think we have to understand the circumstances. Sometimes these are class circumstances. You know, looking at a posh, rich white woman who has made it in a career is not going to make you feel particularly enthused if you're working class living on a council estate, mm -hmm. whatever mm -hmm. gender you are. So we have to tap into what the particular needs and circumstances of each individual person are if we're, if we're really going to tackle gender inequality because gender is not the only axis by which social disadvantage mm. happens. So then moving on to your next book, Superior, that we touched upon earlier, um, it seems like Superior was brewing in your mind for decades and you told me how you wrote it for yourself. Um, what was the main objectives or what message were you trying to get across with Superior? Um, I wrote it for myself because, like I said, because of um, my experiences growing up um, and my activism that got me into journalism in the first place, um, I'd been turning over the, 
this issue of identity and race in my head for decades, mm. consuming so much literature around it, trying to get to grips with what does my identity mean? What will the identity of my children mean? What is my place in the world? Um, and who am I? What am I? And I guess superior, full title is Superior, the Return of Race Science. And it is exploring the ways in which race was constructed or the idea of race was constructed, um, not just by scientists, but by philosophers and other thinkers from around the Enlightenment onwards, and how Western science reified this idea of race and reinforced it and injected it into um, political and social ideas about race and vice versa. So the politics informed the scientists and the scientists in turn informed the politics and how that continued and why even to this day those myths about biological race persist and where those ideas come from and why it's so important for us to try and extricate ourselves from this belief that race is biologically tangible. I had some license after Inferior came out because it did well um, to write what I wanted to write after that. So I just wanted to get these things straight in my head. I'd get some clarity. And I did get clarity at the end of that. And that has empowered me because now when, for example, I worked with you or when I when I did that piece for The Lancet or, or at other times that I'm expected to talk about issues like race and health or racism in science or anything else, I can do that from a point of, of understanding. I have the facts kind of very firmly in my grip. So there's certainly been a fair amount of backlash, to put it mildly, to Superior. And what struck me is that this has come from quite different groups. So there are the, the white supremacists on one side, uh, but also professionals who haven't faced up to their own profession's involvement. So I'm based in UCL, and this was the home of the eugenics movement, mm -hmm. Francis Galton, Carl Pearson, Mary Stopes, just down the road. Um, can you tell me about this professional response from doctors, from biologists, geneticists? Well, I have to say, by and large, the response even from academia has been really positive. So Superior was on the book of the year list at Nature, um, Smithsonian Mag, um, most of the national newspapers, NPR Science Friday. So I think it was well received by most scientists, but there were some who took huge exception to having the finger pointed at them. So the white supremacists and the kind of far right people I expected, of course, to be attacked by them. And they have certainly kind of come for me in a big way. One of the reasons I'm not on Twitter and Facebook anymore is because of that. But um, when Superior first came out, even some population geneticists were just incensed that I might point the finger at them as well. And I asked in a New Scientist article, does population genetics still have a racism problem? And they said, of course we don't. We're anti-racist. We're liberal and left-wing. And, you know, one guy even said to me, when I lived in America, I almost had black friends. <laughs> okay. Um, they just didn't accept that they had any work to do here. But you know that changed. So these same population genetics, one of one of them in particular, who I won't name here, I have since worked with. He's invited me to speak at his institution twice. And um, we've had beautiful conversations together. How much science is mm. politicized, mm. how much we have to be careful when we think about race in these ways. So I do think progress is possible on that front. And I do think, um, you know, Philip Ball, the science writer, after he read Superior, he wrote a piece for The Guardian saying he changed his mind 
on race, which I didn't anticipate I would do for anyone. But I'm particularly glad I did it for him because he is obviously a good faith person. He's not reading this with a, mm. with a view to challenging it. He was reading it with an open mind and an open heart and actually had his mind changed as a result. That's what writing it did for me. You know, like I said, I was also burdened by these um, myths and and biases that I hadn't fully challenged. And writing it challenged my beliefs. I'm still in the process of challenging what I think about human difference. But there are still those who don't, you know, who really don't think they have anything left mm. to do, mm. that they have done everything, that they are anti-racist and that's enough, and that their field or their profession, leaving aside how unrepresentative and what the demographics of their institutions might look like, that they really don't have anything left to do. You know, for them, the racist are mm. other people. And what I tried so hard to do in Superior is remind people that we are all burdened by this. We are all affected by these ideas. And however free of it you might think you are, you cannot grow up in this world at this moment and not have some biases. Of course you do. <laughs> it's a wonderful book by... Um, Jennifer Eberhardt, the psychologist in the US called Biased, which came out around the same time that Superior did. Um, so Jennifer works with police forces in the US to try and combat institutional racism. Right the way through this book, she reminds us is this is not an issue that affects only white people with respect mm. to everybody else. It affects every single one of us. We live in a system that makes us think about ourselves and others in a certain way. And to some extent, we are all victims of that. So thank you, Anne, for joining me today. Uh, well, one thing I find interesting is that our work kind of overlaps. But for me, I tend to speak to like-minded people. But what you do is take mm. these discussions to the public, and that's essential. And it comes with the targeting, the online abuse, but it's so important to make those connections. So thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you to my guest, Angela Saini. The episode was produced by Priscilla Jumarez Sarter and myself. The theme song is Paper Stars by Leah Maiden. This is a Global Health Lives podcast. Thank you for listening.